Since the first of the year, we have been journeying through a topic that is very personal for a lot of people. The topic of finding our way back to normal. And every single Sunday, since the second Sunday in this month, we have looked to one single chapter in God's Word, Matthew chapter 2. And and in Matthew chapter 2, we have looked for secret or, or key ingredients for helping us to find our way back to normal. Matthew chapter 2 is... It's what many people refer to as a Christmas passage because it, it, in, it entails the birth of our Savior and also entails the visit of the wise men to see the Christ child. So far from this study, uh, we have gleaned three ingredients to help us find our way back to normal. The first one is that finding our way back to normal requires being attentive to God's direction, being sensitive to what God is saying. To the wise men, God spoke through a star consistently. To Mary and Joseph, particularly Joseph, God spoke in Joseph's dreams when he slept during the night or when he napped during the day. Uh, For the most part, God will not speak to us through a star or perhaps uh, through dreams, but he does speak to us through Scripture And he speaks to us through circumstances, and he speaks to us through the counsel of godly people you respect, and I respect. And so, finding our way back to normal requires being attentive to God's direction. The second uh, key ingredient that we have found is that finding our way back to normal requires time. It takes time. It takes time when your life has been turned upside down, when your apple cart has been totally turned over. It takes time to get it back to some semblance of normal. The wise men came at least seven, eight hundred miles from the east to Bethlehem, and they spent some time with Mary and Joseph and the Christ child, and then they returned seven, eight hundred miles back to the place from whence they came. It took time to get there. It took time to get back Finding your way back to normal takes time. It takes time for you. You have to allow yourself time. It takes, it takes time for God. Not that it has to, but it is normally the way God works. And so you have to allow God the time. It also takes time for the people you love. Those are the ones we get most annoyed with. Why don't you just gird up your loins and get it over with? No, it takes time. Why don't you just get better? Just make a decision to get better. No, it takes time to get back to normal. Then last week we saw that getting back to normal, finding our way back to normal, may get you back to the same geographical place from which you started, but you will never be the same person. You will be a different person when you get there, when you find your way back to normal. Because an encounter with God, whether it is a positive encounter or a negative encounter, will not leave you the same person. It's simply not possible for that encounter to leave you to be the same person. This morning, I want you to return with me one more time to Matthew chapter 2. We'll begin with with verse 16. It's a troubling part. For me, it's the most troubling part of this chapter. It's a chapter that I wish wasn't there, that I wished had not happened. But it did happen. And Matthew does include it. 
And I believe we'd be remiss to ignore it. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. It is the one part of Matthew chapter 2 that no one really wants to talk about. We love talking about the nativity, although it is doubtful that the wise men were there at the nativity. We love talking about the wise men coming. We love talking about an angel speaking in a dream at night to Joseph. We even uh, look with awe and interest as Mary and Joseph leave Bethlehem and they journey down to Egypt And they wait for word that it's safe to come home again. But the one part of this story that nobody really wants to honestly talk about is this story about the massacre of the boys of Bethlehem by Herod the king. Herod had instructed the wise men who had come several hundred miles from the east to Jerusalem. He had instructed them, he says, go to Bethlehem. Herod had learned from his religious leaders that the Christ, the king of the Jews, would be born in Bethlehem. He says, go to Bethlehem and worship the child. That sounds really good. Then he says, after you have found him and worshipped him, come back and let me know so I can go worship him also. It sounded wonderful. It sounded like the amiable intentions of a godly king, except that it was anything but that. The insanely jealous Herod only wanted to go see the child, not so he could worship him, but so he could kill him. The wise men left Jerusalem, and they did go to Bethlehem. They sought out the child. Matthew says that they found Mary and the boy, Jesus, in a house in Bethlehem. And they were overjoyed when they saw him, and they presented to him gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. They spent some time there worshiping this baby. They spent some time, I'm sure, talking to his mother and to his supposed father. And when the time came for them to leave, the Bible says that they had a dream from God warning them not to go back to Herod, but to go to their own country a different way. And this they did because, as I said earlier, they were attentive to the direction of God. And so they left Bethlehem and they went back to the east to the area, probably Iraq or Iran today. They went back to that country by a different route. They were different men. They had encountered the Christ, and they were different, and they went back home. Herod waited. He was watching the clock. He was browsing through the calendar, Xing off every day as it came, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, counting the days, he had in his mind about how long it should have taken the wise men to travel to Bethlehem and then come back to Jerusalem. And when that time had come and gone and he had not heard anything from the wise men, he determined that they had tricked him. 
Nobody tricked Herod. Nobody outwitted Herod. And so he had a plan B. Plan A was the wise men come back. They tell him where the child was. He goes to see the child and kill him. Simple as that. Plan A. But plan A didn't work out. And so Herod had a plan B. The plan B was, okay, if they don't come back, I have a pretty good idea how old this child must be. I'm assuming that he's still in Bethlehem. If I will just add a few months on to the age that I think he is, it'll come out to be about two years old. So if I send my troops into Bethlehem and kill every baby boy ages two and under in Bethlehem and its vicinity, I should kill the Christ child. It was an act of terrorism by anybody's definition. And Matthew says he sent his contractors into Bethlehem and they killed every single boy ages two and under. As we look at these verses, I'm sure that you like I am struck with the enormous sense of evil that this act had to have entailed. You try to find the right words to describe what this text conveys to us words like barbaric, despicable, inhumane, unspeakable cruelty, an act worthy of Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot, Saddam Hussein. In fact, with all those words, as we look back on this story, it's very difficult to find words that are bad enough that are strong enough, that have enough calories to really convey the horror of this story. Herod, by this time, is old by uh, first century standards. He's very old and he is very sick. He's suffering from a combination of a kidney disease and gangrene in his abdominal, in particular his lower abdominal area. That on top of the fact that he had a lifelong lunacy. He was a lunatic in the most literal fashion. And so he was paranoid. And if he heard any hint that anybody was uh, thinking about replacing him as king of the Jews, he immediately put in place actions to do away with those people. And... He did away with a lot of people. He had ten different wives over the course of his life. His favorite one was a lady by the name of Mariamne. Now, he would marry another Mariamne later, but Mariamne, number one, was his favorite. He told everybody, uh, even toward the end of his life, that Mariamne, number one, was always his favorite. He executed her because he feared that she was trying to usurp his kingship. Uh, You know, you just don't want anybody loving you like that. Not only did he execute the wife that he claimed to be his favorite, but he executed two of the sons that he had by Mariamne. Then he executed a third son right not long before he died because he feared that he was trying to usurp his authority. Here's a man who killed one of his wives and three of his own children. He killed his mother-in-law. He killed his brother-in-law. He had a brother that he uh, put out a contract on 
intended to kill him. But fortunately for the brother, the brother died of natural causes before Herod could get his men to him. Probably scared to death. Before Herod died, knowing that he was hated by everybody in the country, especially the Jews, he feared that no one would be crying or mourning upon his death. And so he had some of his his strongest leaders under him arrested, put in a prison just across the Jordan River called Machaerus. By the way, it's the same prison where John the Baptist was uh, held and later beheaded. But he, Herod had all of his, uh, most of his leaders taken and put in Macris in that prison. And the order that he gave was, at the moment that I die, I want you to kill, execute these men so that somebody will be crying when I die. The order was never carried out. Matthew is the only writer to mention this story. It's interesting because by the time Herod's bounty hunters arrive in Bethlehem, Jesus is no closer than 120 miles away. He's nowhere close to the massacre of these innocent boys. And Matthew describes this, he's the only one to do so, uh, Mark and John, the uh, two of the other gospel writers, they don't mention it, but they don't mention the birth narrative at all anyway. Luke is the only gospel writer, only other writer in the New Testament to mention the birth of Jesus and describe that narrative. And even though Luke goes into meticulous detail, he does not mention the massacre of the boys of Bethlehem. Only Matthew does that. In fact, of that time period that encompasses about 400 years, if you go back 100 years B.C. all the way to 300 uh, A.D., Matthew is the only, only person to mention it at all. There are three different historians who who lived during the time of uh, Herod and who chronicle much of Herod's life, including intimate details of his barbaric acts. And even though they detail many of his murders, they never mention the massacre of the boys of Bethlehem. Flavius Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian, wrote the annals of the Jewish war with Rome that culminated with Rome being destroyed in 70 AD. He wrote in in his annals, there's a whole section that is a biographical section of King Herod the Great, and he details his murderous acts. He details his building projects. He details his sicknesses. He details his his ten wives and his many children and the murder of his some of one of his wives and his and three of his boys. But he never mentions the murder of the boys of Bethlehem. That has led some scholars to conclude that the story never occurred. And yet, Matthew appears to write this with the air of historicity. And yet, Matthew, in in relating this story to us, as we read it, what we know about Herod, it was totally in agreement with his character. This is the kind of thing that Herod would have done for sure. Why did Matthew record this story? Didn't have to have it. He could have even had Mary and Joseph going down to Bethlehem or going down to Egypt without mentioning anything about Herod and this massacre of the Bethlehem boys. 
Some scholars say, and I think there's some legitimacy to this, Matthew, you see, is writing to, to, to Jews to show them that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And in order to show him as king of the Jews, Matthew connects Jesus to some of the heroes of Old Testament Jewish faith. All you have to do is go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the opening chapter of Matthew's gospel, and you see there that he says that Jesus was the son of David, who was the son of Abraham. I mean, in verse 1, Matthew immediately connects Jesus with the two uh, arguably most prominent characters, some would argue, in the Old Testament. By the time he finishes that family tree in chapter 1, Matthew has connected Jesus to Abraham, to Jacob, to Isaac, to David, and to King Solomon. But in that genealogy, there's one person that you would expect Matthew to connect Jesus to that he didn't. Moses. Moses is not in that genealogy. And then that brings you to Matthew chapter 2, the next chapter. And I get the picture. You have Jesus being born. There's an order by the king to kill all the babies where, where Jesus was born. But Jesus is rescued, carried down into, there's Egypt And the other boys of Bethlehem are massacred. Those of you who have read, many of you, most of you perhaps, who've read carefully through the Old Testament, uh, immediately your mind goes back to a story that is reflected in Exodus chapter 1, where Moses is born. And another king, this time Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has ordered that all of the boys, all of the Israelite boys, be killed as soon as they're born as a way of controlling the population growth of the Israelites. But Moses was spared. Other babies were killed. A massacre in Egypt. But other babies, other babies were killed. Moses was rescued and then, as you know, raised in the palace of Pharaoh for the first 40 years of his life. Could Matthew be harking back to that? You got Egypt in both of them. You've got the rescue of God's selected person in both of them. You have the massacre of other boys, only boys, in both of them. You have the massacre of boys so that that one that God has chosen could be rescued in both of them. Could it be that Matthew is trying to connect Jesus with one more hero of the Jewish faith and that hero would be Moses? Matthew also connects this massacre to Jeremiah chapter 31. In Jeremiah 31, the prophet Jeremiah is looking at Jerusalem in the aftermath of the Babylonian invasion of 586. People are dead. Blood is flowing in the streets. And he gives a poetic description of the mothers who are huddled over their dead children, some of them adult children, Grieving, weeping, wailing. He says, Rachel, there's a, a, a sound of weeping in Ramah. Rachel weeping for her children. And she refused to be comforted because they were no more. And Matthew, as he's writing, he's imagining himself hearing the mothers of Bethlehem. And it reminded him of Jeremiah writing about Rachel, who, as you know, was Jacob in the book of Genesis, Jacob's favorite wife. And you also remember that Rachel gave birth to two boys, Joseph 
and the youngest one, Benjamin. And you also know that when she gave birth to Benjamin, she died in childbirth. Rachel is connected with weeping, hurting, pain, wailing. Matthew connected this story. There's no doubt as you look at this story that there's pain. And just how many boys were killed in Bethlehem? I read one time that the traditional estimate is 10,000 boys killed. I read a commentator who said, who estimated that 14,000 boys were killed in the massacre. Years ago, I read a commentator who said that he looked at Revelation chapter 7 and 14 where John in the last book of the Bible was carried up in a vision to see heaven. And when he was in heaven, he saw 144,000 who had no guile in their mouths. Now, it doesn't take very long once a child is in the world for that child to have a little guile. I remember the first word of guile came out of my lips. Oh, at about three hours after I was born, seems lie. They would have had to have been children, this commentator said, that he saw. And so he went on to say that those 144,000 meant that there were 144,000 boys massacred in Bethlehem. They were killed before they had an opportunity for guile to come out of their lips. All of those sound good. They make for good newsprint, but they can't be true. The current population of the city of Bethlehem and the metropolitan area of Bethlehem is 25,000 people today. The highest that that population ever was in recorded history was 58,000 back in the early 40s. Scholars estimate that the total population of Bethlehem at the time Jesus was born hovered at tops a thousand people. There's no way you could have 10,000 or 14,000, let alone 144,000 boys killed. Probably a more accurate number, but certainly less excitable is that there were 25 or 30. Not that 25 or 30 kids being massacred at one time wouldn't make the news. Noonan, Georgia has 30,000 people in it. Palmetto, Georgia has 6,000 according to the 2008 population figures. If we had 25 boys killed in Palmetto, Georgia last night by one single person, Oh, I think we'd know it. But what does that have to do, ladies and gentlemen, with finding your way back to normal? Certainly this story doesn't make Herod look good. It's meant not to make Herod look good. Uh, but is that, really, is that really the issue? Because you see, as I look at this passage of Scripture, not only does Herod not look good, God doesn't look too good. Why did, he, why did God allow this to happen? He knew Jesus was gone. God gave Joseph a dream. Why didn't he give the other parents of the boys of Bethlehem a dream? Warning them to leave. Why didn't he just stop Herod? He could have. Why didn't he just send an angel to strike Herod's bounty hunters? He could have. He did it with the Assyrians. 186,000 at one time. Blown out by one angel. But he didn't. And those are questions... While they need to be asked, I believe there are no answers to them. And perhaps as we search for some meaning out of this unspeakable crime, 
perhaps the one thing that we can come away with is this. When you are finding your way back to normal, please know that finding your way back to normal may consist of experiences, tragic experiences that defy explanation and that you cannot reconcile with part of what you know and believe about God. I read about Job, speaking of a hero. Job said in one place when unspeakable horror had had befallen him, he'd lost all ten of his children, he said this. He says, though God slay me, yet will I trust him. That verse was brought up one time in a meeting I was in. Somebody turned to me and they said, are you there? I'm not there. I I wish I was. I think I wish I was. But I can't say yet. Though God slay me, though God slay my kids, though God slay my wife, yet will I trust him. I, I, I don't know that I can say that. I know that as God helps me and you find our way back to normal, we will run across some experiences that we cannot explain away. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank you for the patience of these folks who have sat here and listened to my long words. Lord, we all are at different places on the road of finding our way back to normal. And some of us on this road have either witnessed or experienced firsthand situations that have affected us profoundly that we can't explain that defy explanation, that we cannot reconcile with everything we know about you. Help us work through these situations and these issues and find our way to you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.